Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Guardian. If we get better at listening to one another our society gets stronger. And that's really what I'm determined to do over the next few weeks, to engage in a deep listening project, to try and bring people together, to recognise that different perspectives don't necessarily and shouldn't mean conflict here, but we can build bridges to understanding. Hello, lovely people of pods. Welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy. I'm political editor of Guardian Australia. With me on the program this week is the Minister for Immigration and Multicultural Affairs, Andrew Giles. These are anxious times. The ASIO boss, Mike Burgess, has made a rare public intervention, urging Australians to keep their words measured and warning about the potential for opportunistic violence in our country. This is in the wake of the escalating conflict in the Middle East. It seemed to me to be the right time to have a think about social cohesion. Uh, That's why Andrew's on the show. Listen up. Andrew Giles, welcome to the pod. Great to be with you, Catherine. I think many listeners will feel quite overwhelmed at the moment. We've emerged after a bruising referendum debate, a polarising campaign spanning many, many months. Uh, The conflict in Israel is deeply unsettling for diaspora communities here and for the rest of us, quite frankly. Uh, How concerned are you about social cohesion in Australia right at the moment? I'm very concerned, and, and I don't want to um, alarm in in any way that that um, that goes beyond the frame of this. But I think we recognise that the events of the seventh of October, that abhorrent terrorist attack by Hamas, shocked Australians and shocked people around the world. And the images we see every day, every morning when we wake up on our television screens, we seek to imagine the just the sheer volume of innocent life, Palestinian and Israeli, that's lost. For anyone who doesn't feel a direct personal connection, it is overwhelming and and awful. But we've got to appreciate that there are hundreds of thousands of Australians who have a direct, immediate personal connection to this awful conflict. So for me, as the Minister for Multicultural Affairs, my focus, my absolute priority is on ensuring that we do everything that we can to keep Australians together, to make sure that we never take for granted our hard-won social cohesion and support for a, a multicultural and diverse society. That's challenging, um, but it needs to be an absolute focus. And uh, let's just, we'll come back to Israel and Palestine. 
let's let's just start with the referendum and what might be needed in the wake of uh, that no result. Now, obviously, a large a large number of Indigenous leaders have been silent since uh, since Saturday night. Uh, you know, there's obviously a recalibration and a grieving occurring after that uh, election defeat. Uh, but, you know, there are obviously implications now with people like Marcia Langton out and about saying reconciliation is dead. Uh, you know, how, how you know, how we sort of bring the country back together, not only Indigenous Australians and, and, uh, and the rest, but also yes voters and no voters. Uh, so I'm keen to hear your ideas about that and also keen to hear how the government's anti-racism strategy may fit into the sort of, uh, well, you know, dare we say an act of leadership uh, to bring the country back together after this result. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an enormous question and, and I'll only um, sketch at a response to it for, for a couple of reasons. One, um, you know, I strongly believe that we do need to allow Indigenous leaders the time that the majority of them have asked for to reflect. I think we've also got to all take the time to digest what the process that we've been through means. Now, of course, um, like every Australian, every member of the government, I accept uh, the verdict the Australian people delivered on Saturday, disappointed, deeply disappointed as I am through it. Um, But I took great heart from um, the contributions that night of the Prime Minister and Minister Burney, and and, and I, I do... Um, recognise the the way in which that they have sought to frame the conversation going forward. Um, I don't think the decision on Saturday is a rejection of reconciliation. I don't think it means that um, Australians aren't deeply concerned about some of the challenges that we face in trying to close the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. We do have to think about how we go about that and we have to keep listening. So I, I will pause my remarks at mm. that point because I want to listen. Mm. Uh, I think we need to listen, all of us. But the second part of your question is fundamentally important because it goes to the steps that we can and should do to ensure that every Australian feels that they belong, that they are respected and they are valued. And I think those are propositions that are almost universally shared. And a foundation stone for that is a rejection of racism and a recognition of the damage it does. The damage it does, obviously, to individuals who are excluded, abused, denied opportunities. But I think the damage it does to our sense of society, our sense of an identity as Australians. That's why, in opposition, we committed to a new national anti-racism strategy. And I think right now, for all the reasons we've been talking about already, um, it's more important than ever to have a society that's anchored in a sense that we all deserve to be valued and no one deserves to be treated differently because of their ethnic origin, their indigeneity or any other attribute they have. Um, We've got to do better at recognising that racism, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia have all been on the increase for some time and that there are forces in our society who seek to exploit those things. So building a strategy that's all about bringing Australians together and recognising the harms that racism does, again, not just to individuals, but to our sense of society, is absolutely fundamental right now. And for listeners, and there there may be some who are just completely unaware about the anti-racism strategy, have not heard about it before, uh, you know, give give them a sense of, uh, you know, 
sort of broadly what you're working on and the timeframes for delivering it? Yeah, so we've been working with the Australian Human Rights Commission for some time now to build on the very successful Racism It Stops With Me campaign of of some time ago to build an understanding both of how racism impacts Australians and how we can do more to recognise and prevent um, racist behaviours um, at, at every level of the spectrum from the unconsidered and casual to, to more obvious and overt forms of abuse. Um, some research has gone into how we best go about it and how we best engage Australians who, um, you know, in the context of, of busy lives um, may not have the bandwidth to think through some of these issues in detail and find effective ways of connecting them to experiences that may not be part of their lives. So that's the focus right now. But I think there's a renewed sense of urgency given the events of recent weeks. And that point you made uh, just before we got to urgency, um, that point you made about, about reaching people, like that's that's sort of at the foundation of everything really because I think if there's a sort of single lesson from the referendum, it, it, it's that in the sense that campaigners, you know, reported that people were just completely head down in material concerns about life uh, for completely understandable reasons. I think we're all a bit like that, really. Uh, But the people proved quite difficult to reach, particularly in an environment where there's conflict or a perception of conflict. So uh, I wonder if I could tease you out a fraction more on how do we reach people. Uh, Yeah, look, um, for those of us... um Anyone in political life, we obviously want to want to make change. And for those of us on the on the broad left or centre left, we want to instil progressive change. And for me, that means being really clear about seeing people where they are, <laughs> imagining where we'd like to be as a society, and building a bridge between those two things without assuming too much. Mm. And I think that assumption about um, the the space that people uh, might have for the issues that matter to me um, is something that's difficult sometimes to overcome. Mm. And I think that is a big lesson of recent politics around the world, that we've got to understand how all the pressures and um, dimensions of an individual's life impact on their willingness or capacity to engage in issues that, that might matter to um, to me. Mm. And, and again, we've got to be where people are, not where we want them to be. And by urgency, that's, let's just try and pin that a bit too. By urgency, what do you mean? You mean you will bring it forward or what do you mean? Well, definitely. I mean, one of the things that I'm really concerned to do in terms of responding to the impact of the Hamas-Israel conflict is to make sure that I'm engaged in a process of engagement with affected community members, Palestinian, the wider Muslim community, the wider Mm. Middle Eastern community, of course, the Jewish Australian uh, community. Uh, Engagement that I would say is consequential. So I'm not just having meetings, but I'm taking on board the sentiments and ideas that that exist there. And I want to make sure that the actions that government either facilitates or does is deeply grounded in what we are hearing Mm. from people who are directly affected. Well, that point about meeting people where they are. 
That's yep. exactly it, Catherine. So you don't want to give me a time frame for when this accelerated anti-racism strategy may join us? Well, I think, you know, we listened to um, the verdict, uh, the advice rather, of, of, of Mike Burgess, our security agencies. We look at the fact that there have been at least two neo-Nazi incidents um, on the streets of Melbourne in, yep. in recent times. That lends a sense of urgency. So I think we've got to combine the fact that there are heightened reasons to advance an anti-racism agenda, but we've also got to make sure, for the reasons that we were just talking about, yeah. that the strategy speaks to those it needs to speak to. Yeah. It isn't just something that's a great document on paper, that we know it can be effectively communicated across the community. That That's a, a really big part of this challenge. And I think that's the broader reflection I would make here as we work our way through what's going to be you know, an ongoing difficult debate. All of us who occupy the privileged spaces in public life or indeed the media need to think really carefully about how we speak mm. and focus on words that bring people together rather than foster division. And you mentioned Mike Bird just a minute ago, the head of ASIO, who has sort of issued some rare public guidance about uh, the way debates are conducted, but also uh, warned that there is uh, sort of, there is the scope or the window for opportunistic violence, I think was his turn of phrase. I mean, we started with the question, how worried are you? You said very. Uh, it, that sounds worrying. Well, I think the, the two um, neo-Nazi incidents are things that, that can't be ignored. And we need to think about the effect of the individuals directly the subject of, of that, but also on the chilling effect. And again, I want to live in a society where everyone belongs, where everyone is valued and where public space is open to everyone. I guess that's one of the harms of racism, that it denies those rights to people. So I think we need to be really careful as we move our way through the coming days to make sure that we are speaking thoughtfully, that we're not rushing to judgment and we are enabling people to get that sense that we are a nation that is united, a nation that values our diversity in which everyone is respected, where everyone's voices are heard and where everyone can fully participate in our life. Mm. I want to just sort of uh, step back slightly, so, uh, still on the same theme, because I think the discussion about social cohesion was the only discussion that listeners needed from us, really, this after the last week. Uh, but I would just obviously... Um, there's a context sitting behind sort of recent events and uh, always with uh, when I consider these issues, my go-to sort of data points uh, are the work the Scanlon Foundation has done since 2007 uh, to track a sense of, you know, social cohesion in Australia. The last survey, last year, I don't think we've seen the new one yet, the last survey was uh, basically said social cohesion's at a tipping point. It said uh, basically it's at a tipping point because we are now post-pandemic. The, the economic supports that were kind of rolled out during the pandemic have been withdrawn. Uh, cost of living pressure is back. Uh, and basically people who are under financial stress are much less likely to see multiculturalism as as a valuable plus for the country. So there's that. Uh, there's, you know, people in financial distress. Then there's also young people. Um, you know, that, that Scanlon research and the more recent recut of the data with some other economic indicators uh, led, uh, you know, led them to quite a sort of 
mind-focusing conclusion that young people in Australia are just not buying into the national identity or national project of this country. So they seem pretty big challenges for a government. Uh, how are you thinking through those things? Well, they are big challenges, but but I think there's there's something in the Scanlon survey that I think is a really significant counterweight to some of the, the propositions you put forward, and that is that nine in 10 Australians value multiculturalism. Yeah, yeah that's and, true. You know, yeah. The, the large majority, also a very large majority, are deeply appreciative of um, what immigration has brought to us in its cultural as well as its economic dimension. So I'd say that, yep. you know, it's not all doom and gloom. No, in that's fact, fair. Yep. If you look around the world, um, what Scanlon tells you is that we have built the world's most successful multicultural society. Mm. What it also tells you is that we cannot take it for granted. Mm. I certainly don't as minister, and I'm really concerned about, you know, some of the undercurrents that you've referred to Um you know, we spoke a minute ago or a few minutes ago about how people, when they're under strained economic circumstances, obviously are focused resolutely on the day-to-day. -day. Yep. Um, we've got to recognise that. Of course they are. And, of course, our priority as a government is supporting them to get through the day-to-day. -day. Yep. But in doing that, we're not forgetting about the things that make a society, our Australian values, our shared multicultural values. So, you know, it's about doing both of those things and recognising that they should be complementary. Yeah. It, if, it, sorry, go sorry. on. Sorry. No, no, no you go on. we speak to people on their terms and we create the space for engagement, and that's particularly true, I think, about younger people with all the generational dimensions that, that are becoming an increasing feature of our economic as well as our political mm. debate. And for, for some of the reasons you touched upon, um, we committed at the election to a review of our multicultural framework, something that hasn't happened 50 years mm -hmm. um, since really we embraced multiculturalism under Whitlam and Grasby. And I, I've been really interested in this um, because I think it's a reflection of who we are as a country, but also because I've seen so many distinctions based not on someone's cultural religious, ethnic or national background, but on their age. Mm. And that has been a really big feature to me. And as we've structured the review, a big focus on the part of the reviewers has been to facilitate contributions, not simply in the traditional large word doc, um, heavily footnoted um, style, yeah. but to enable not just contributions in a wide variety of the languages commonly spoken in our country, but in different formats, like in video or audio, reflecting how a lot of people a little bit younger than, uh, than, than you and me um, prefer to communicate because I do feel that a lot of younger people don't have that sense of buy-in. They don't have that sense of purchase in our society probably because they don't feel the sense of purchase in our economy. So picking up from that point, Andrew, the yes, that there is yeah, age is becoming a factor because of sort of that intergenerational equity issue. Um, and that's really fascinating and it sort of ricochets all through politics in so many different ways. We also have to sort of look at the migration piece, I think, if we're talking about multiculturalism. Uh, there's very high levels of migration in Australia at the moment because obviously uh, post-pandemic students returned. Uh, you know, th th there are a lot of people here mm. at the moment uh, and the government's objective in a policy sense is to find uh, more permanent pathways to residency and citizenship and all that sort of stuff rather than having these big, big temporary movements of people. Uh Basically, you know, sort of putting this piece together, and I know you're encouraging me not to be a doomsayer, and I'm sorry because this is a bit of a downer, 
guys listening this weekend. I am sorry. I'm perhaps not as not quite as depressed about the world as I seem this weekend, but I am a little bit depressed about the state of the world and I don't imagine I'm alone. But anyway, so we've sort of got a piece at the moment of uh, polarisation, conflict ricocheting through diaspora communities. We've got a sort of, we've got a schism we need to repair between the original inhabitants of the continent and everybody else. We've got rising sort of economic pressure. We've got a lot of migrants in the country at the moment and people worried about housing and all of this sort of stuff. Again, this is a really complex set of dynamics for a migration and multiculturalism minister to manage. How do you propose to manage them? Well, that's not the easiest question I've been asked. (laughs) And I think, you know, I'll look forward to question time today (laughs) on that basis, Catherine. But look, what I'd say is this. Um, When it comes to managing the migration program, there's a couple of things that we are focused on. The big one, as you touched upon, is getting the balance right as in terms of how Australians have have, have consistently thought of our migration program, that it is path to permanency, and that really is a more managed approach through the um, permanent intake that we set every year in the budget. What we have seen over a long period of time, starting really under Howard, is an increasing um, an increasing proportion of people becoming what we would say is permanently temporary. Yeah. And, and that has a couple of consequences. One is obviously we're talking about demand-driven aspects of the program mm-hmm. um, running perhaps out of balance with the permanent intake, but also that sense of not being particularly anchored in Australia has some consequences well, that's, for them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's trying to get the balance right because we recognise firstly that it's a good thing that people want to come to Australia. We recognise that also there are some skill shortages that we need mm. to, to fill in the short term from overseas. But what we need to do after a wasted decade is to line that up with our domestic training. And the work that Brendan O'Connor has done in founding Jobs and Skills Australia must be seen as an essential counterpoint to our skilled migration system. And that's going to be, over time, a huge part of the puzzle that, that deals with some of the challenges that you refer to, making sure that we've got these two streams running together, not in opposite directions, which has been the case for the last decade. Yeah, and it's sort of interesting because obviously you refer to Mendigo to a review of multiculturalism, the first the first since the year dot. You've also got a review of migration, which is a sort of imminent, is it? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, um, w- the work that Martin Parkinson and uh, Joanna Howe and John Azaris did and was delivered to government, which has been sort of widely talked about in the public, our migration strategy that's being led by Minister Claire O'Neill will, will, is pretty close to being released. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that is the sort of long-term structured response that has been missing because what Australians saw over the last decade, um, in particular under um, Peter Dutton, um, was uh, a gap between a, a, a deep fondness for rhetoric about um, managing migration that was completely inconsistent with attention to the immigration function of mm. national government, which was neglected at a policy level, but more fundamentally, and I don't think this is as recognised as it should be, neglected at a level of basic administration. So we are trying to not just unravel a policy debate that's underdone, but an administrative and indeed an enforcement mm. and integrity focus, as Christine Nixon's shocking report has shown, yep. that, that has left our migration system 
not in a state that's fit for our purposes. But in in terms of the review, uh, if you guys have missed the Nixon review, this is this has been handed down in the last couple of weeks and basically just demonstrated that there's you know that there's the the management of the pipeline is just all over the shop and people are being exploited in the in yeah, anyway. Go and have a look online if you haven't if you haven't seen that. I'm interested about the review in terms of because I'm you know we're having a we're having a very conceptual conversation today, which I think is actually really valuable to people. Um, what are we likely? I'm not saying give me the document, Andrew. I'm just saying what are we likely to see in this response? It's sort of because you're saying, you know, we need to kind of go back to and. and establish, you know, what multiculturalism is in Australia and why it matters. Uh, We've got to look at the migration system to make sure that it's, you know, that it's working effectively and that it's serving national objectives. Uh, You know, are we likely to see, I I don't know, targets of particular number of migration streams? Like, or or what what is this thing? Is it sort of like, I think people would be quite interested. Yeah, well, I'm going to disappoint you and say I'm not going to preempt what the review (laughs) or the strategy is going to say, but I think it's worth talking through some of the principles that, that we are keen on having our migration system exemplify. And that fundamentally is a migration system that is tethered squarely in the national interest. And that for us means a refocus back to pathways to permanency in place of uh, effectively the... Permanent temporary. Yeah, the permanent temporary, a a demand-driven system that um, is not serving the national interest. It means recognising for me that the immigration system should best be conceived of as something that's facilitative rather than determinative of wider policy outcomes. And again, over time, we haven't seen, and, and this is the most obvious area, the migration system and the education system working closely together. Um, because if you look at international students, that's a, a really big part yeah. of our intake and a big part of the demand of an intake. Yep. It's an incredibly important industry for Australia, but it's also been the site of many of the challenges that we are seeing in the program. So we do need to make sure that both our migration settings and our higher education and, and vet settings maintain integrity. Mm. But that has to be a collective um, process and I'm really pleased to work with Minister O'Neill, with Minister O'Connor and Minister Clare on recognising that these systems need to work together. Mm. Mm. That's a really important part of this puzzle which, frankly, um, was forgotten about for the near decade of Conservative administration. Yeah, it's kind of... You know, it's calling really the, all the, all that focus on the false binaries of you know stop the boats and all of that sort of stuff. And meanwhile, it's yeah. Anyway, anyway, <sighs> let's let's move on. Uh, I, I want to just engage you briefly because I'm aware you went uh, to the UK very recently and uh, you had some meetings in London and uh, you also went to the British Labor conference. Uh, looking at a distance, the British migration or immigration debate now looks about as balked as ours. So I'm interested in uh, your reflections on on sort of, you know, the dynamics over there. And also as an attendee of the Labor, the Labor conference, I think a lot of listeners will be curious, you know, is Labor on a path to winning an election or, or what's going on there? Yeah. Um, one of the great advantages of, of, of being in the UK was to get a sense of the Australian debate from outside and a really important um, element that is often overlooked, I think, probably including by me from time to time, is that 
Debates around migration don't exist solely in a national context, obviously, because they involve the choices that prospective migrants are making. And for me, it was absolutely striking to see the similarities of the debate taking place in the UK. And I think we can probably say across all of the English-speaking advanced economies. So, that- Do you mean by that, sorry to cut you off, do you mean in terms of the rhetoric or do you mean in terms of the substance or both? Well, both, but I was really thinking about the substance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, we were anxious in Australia to see what was going to happen with the return of international students post the pandemic. Um, we've seen enormous demand. Mm. That isn't simply an Australian phenomenon. It's something that, that people in the UK are are grappling with. It's something that is also impacting Canada, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So that sense of, I guess, um, shared circumstances, shared policy challenges, I think is important to perceive. And that goes to the related point that um, I think it's really important to recognise that our migration settings are really important, but for many um, they are not important in and of themselves. People look at how um, other countries' migration settings operate as well. So getting a clear sense of of what's going on around the world is is absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. Having the opportunity to meet with um, uh, my ministerial counterparts in the UK, um, obviously from a different political party, but to be able to work through many of the the shared issues and some of those questions that I touched upon earlier about effective administration as well as policy issues where there may be differences of views from time to time was incredibly important to get an understanding about what they are seeing Mm -hmm. um, and and sharing perspectives. Um, I think that was, for me, uh, really important. It will inform how I go about my work. Mm. Um, In terms of of the political situation in the UK, um, maybe I should just say two things. Uh, in, In visiting the country as an Australian minister, I'm obviously not making any judgment on domestic Mm, politics in the UK. Um, But as a member of the Labor Party, um, to be invited to make some contributions around their policy debate was was, um, important Mm -hmm. um, for the same reasons I touched upon with those bilaterals with the government, to to share perspectives. Um, I'd say that when I'm asked about Australia's policy settings in either of those, I'd say we believe they work for us. Not necessarily that they are applicable. I mean, obviously, Australia's geography and and other aspects are quite distinct. But I think some of the terms of the debate that we have seen play out since two thousand and one around questions of asylum, you know, we, I believe we as a party, we as a government, have taken on board some lessons that have been hard earned to deliver a, a framework of policies that deliver the the broad principle that the Prime Minister has set out for some time to make sure that we can assure our communities that we are capable and determined to, capable of and determined to maintain a secure border without abandoning our sense of humanity and compassion to those who need protection. Mm. And I I hear the language that Keir Starmer um, uh, uses in it, it's different words, but really expressing the same principles around a, a sense of urgency about the humanitarian crisis that the world um, faces and the, the challenge also of maintaining that sense of uh, integrity around a migration system. And I'd, I'd say more broadly about the UK that uh, right now the, the UK, uh, under its 
present government is a member of the uh, the refugee diplomacy mm. network, as is Australia, as we work together as resettlement countries towards the Global Refugee Forum in Geneva this year, which I think is an incredibly important moment for the world where we have more people forcibly displaced in human history to see, again, how we can not just see this as problems that individual countries confront, but a global problem that demands a global response. Do you think there's a, we'll, we'll end here, do you, do you actually think there is a prospect of some sort of global breakthrough? Because you're right, with mass mass movements of people after conflict or displacement or for whatever reason, it's sort of, it's it's just a can that gets kicked around the world in the absence of regional solutions, international solutions and consistency between jurisdictions. Do you think there is a world where there could be any or all of the above? Yes, do you? Yes, I do. Um, uh, if I didn't, uh, I wouldn't be doing the job <laughs> that I do, Catherine. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I've spent the very large part of my working life um, committed to these questions, and I do feel optimistic. I feel in the the way in which our foreign minister Penny Wong has gone about rebuilding and strengthening regional relationships, we have a sound framework in our region. I'm incredibly proud of the commitments the Albanese government has made to dramatically lift our refugee intake and to explore the the generosity that exists in the Australian community to go to a community sponsorship model that is very significant. And if I look around the world, the leadership of Secretary Blinken in, in bringing together this refugee diplomacy mm-hmm. network, in looking towards this really important meeting in Geneva where we recognise that there are 35 million refugees in the world right now. We face climate change driving this even more, as well as the conflicts that we started this conversation talking about. I think there is a sense of urgency in governments around the world. There certainly is a sense of urgency in my mind. I think there's also a sense of urgency in communities in this country and and elsewhere. And that's why this discussion about community sponsorship, about complementary pathways is so important and I think can be a critical way, not just in bridging that enormous gap between the number of people who urgently need a resettlement place and the places that have been available, but in anchoring our debate around asylum and refugees in something that's stronger. We see that in Canada, where one in three Canadians are connected through community sponsorship to the experience of refugees, and where their politics has been so different to that of every other advanced economy. Mm. Because when you are directly connected to these experiences, it profoundly shapes your engagement with these questions. And I guess that takes me back to the social cohesion point. If we get better at listening to one another, our society gets stronger. And that's really what I'm determined to do over the next few weeks, to engage in a deep listening project, to try and bring people together, to recognise that different perspectives don't necessarily and shouldn't mean conflict here, but we can build bridges to understanding. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. We appreciate it. Thanks for rating and reviewing and sharing and all of that jazz. Thank you, as always, to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of this show. We will be back very soon.